0: Today's message comes from the story in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And this was the Mary that anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not meant for death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I'm going so that I may awaken him from his sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll come out of it. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about actual sleep. So then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus has died, okay? And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. So let's go. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. And Martha went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise from the dead. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life And the one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she left and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. So when Mary came to the place where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could this man who opened the eyes of the man who was blind not have also kept this man from dying? So Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, came to him. Lord, by this time there's gonna be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, but I knew that you always hear me. Nevertheless, because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said those things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! Out came the, ma- out came the man who had died bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary, he saw what he had done and believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council meeting, and from that day on, they planned together to kill him. This is God's Word.
1: What a passage. You know, I've practiced what I'm going to say more times than usual. I thought, uh uh-oh, the emotional impact on me will wear out. Maybe not. That's one of the most amazing stories in the scripture. And uh, if you go to YouTube and look up Tim Keller 9-11, you'll hear the most amazing sermon that was preached days after the attack on Manhattan blocks away from the attack. That's not the sermon you're gonna hear today. I would like to look at this passage and ask three questions. Question one, who are we? What is mankind's basic nature? What is our biggest problem? Two, what does God want from us if he's able to fix that problem? And three, how do we go about doing that? One, what's our nature, our biggest problem? Two, if God can fix it, what does he want in return? And three, how do we go about doing that? Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for the resurrection of Lazarus. I thank you for your resurrection. And I pray you give us ears to hear, hearts to understand. I pray that you would treat us like Lazarus and that you would breathe your life into our dead bones. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So question one, who are we? What's our nature? What's our biggest problem? You know, when you look at any kind of story like this, you, uh, you can take a lot of different perspectives, right? I mean, you can look at it from the narrator's point of view. Don't be a participant, just kind of the big picture. Or you could become one of the players, you know. Uh, you could look at it as a disciple's viewpoint. He's asleep. He'll wake up. You could look at it from the sister's point of view, the grieving sisters. I would like us to look at this passage from Lazarus' point of view, because we are Lazarus. You and I are dead men. And we need resurrection that's our biggest problem you know this uh c.s <clears throat> lewis said jesus did not come to make bad men good he came to make dead men alive and um that's our problem is is that uh our nature although we're born physically alive spiritually every one of us is still born and we need life from the outside in and this is all over the scripture this is not a uh a new principle. You know, um, when we look at, uh, and we look at Lazarus, when he's laying cold in the tomb, what could he do to improve his life? What could he do to make himself better? You know, I'm a salesman. I go to conferences all the time, and I can talk to you about goal setting and affirmations and visualization, and those things are great, and they can work, but if you're dead, they don't help. Lazarus is not going to visualize being alive. He can't fix his problem. You know, we're all born spiritually dead. You know, it it, um, set you Adam and Eve in the garden. It says that uh, when they ate, God told them, when you eat the fruit that I told you not to eat, if you eat it on that day, you will die. And we read, they ate the fruit and they didn't keel over dead physically. But on that day, they were banished from God's presence. And they were cut off from their source of spiritual life. We're their descendants. We have their spiritual DNA. We're all born spiritually dead. And the Bible talks about how our biggest problem is we're dead. Not that we're bad men who need to be good, but we're dead men who need to be made alive. And so we, we hear the phrase born again. When Christians talk about what it was like before and after being a Christian, we say born again. That comes from John chapter 3. Jesus talking to Lazarus, you must be born again. Lazarus says, "I'm not Lazarus, uh, um, Nicodemus. He says, uh, so I have to go back into my mother's womb? No, you can't earn your way in. You're spiritually dead. You need my life put into you. It's as if you need to be born again. Or we use the word saved, that we're saved. Before I was lost, now I'm saved. That comes from Ephesians chapter 2. By grace, you've been saved through faith that no man should boast. Well, in that same chapter, Paul says that you were dead, but God made us alive. We need life from the outside in. Or here with Lazarus, he's dead. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Before Jesus' words, Lazarus could do nothing to help himself. After those words, he could do nothing to stay dead. It's a true story, a historical fact. Lazarus was a person. He was dead. Jesus said those words. He made him lay. But it also makes for a nice metaphor for the Christian life. And I know people in this room. I don't always know the date, but I know people have heard, Tom, come forth, Joe, come forth. There was a time when you were dead and you heard the words and you came back to life. So question one, what's our biggest problem? We're dead men and we need life from the outside in. So number two, what does God want from us in exchange if he fixes our problem? The answer, not a darn thing. I had a stronger word until I was reminded children are present, but I can defend that stronger word. He doesn't want a darn thing from us. The age-old question, what do you give somebody who already has everything? It's not rhetorical with our creator. He owns everything, even if we give him our life, which is good, and he would like us to do that. But, you know, you look at the back of your jacket, it doesn't say Calvin Klein. It says the Lord God. He created you. He has the copyright, the trademark. He's got the deed, the title i run running out of legal metaphors. He owns everything. There's nothing that we can give him. There's nothing that he needs from us. And there's really nothing that he wants from us. But there's something that he wants with us and for us. And, and, for us, and that is a relationship. The Bible, cover to cover, is the story of a loving, wrathful, just, merciful creator God pursuing a people that he wants to have a relationship with. Everything in the scripture, take the prodigal son. Here's this father, the son is wayward. He, come, he comes to his senses, comes back to his dad, wants to earn his graces in just to be a farmhand and the father will have none of it. He, the father runs from the house and he puts a robe on the son and a ring on his finger to signify you can't do anything to earn your way back into me, but I accept you. I robe you in family relationship you are fully restored, not because of what you can do, but because of me, the Father, and what I do for you. Or in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, either one, the the metaphor of marriage is used all over the Bible. In the Old Testament, God, one of the main metaphors He uses is that He is the faithful spouse to the wayward bride, Israel. And yes, Israel wanders, and yes, He has judgment, and yes, there are things, but it's all about restoration of the relationship. And in the New Testament, same thing. Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the bride. It's all about relationship. That's what he wants. And so you might ask, well, what about, uh, you know, uh, pick up your cross and follow me? Or, you know, if anybody puts his hand to the plow and then looks back, he's not fit for the kingdom. I mean, aren't there commands? doesn't God want us to obey? Isn't disobedience bad? And yeah, there are commands and he wants us to obey and all that, but the focus is relationship. Take Jesus and his disciples. If we are ever a picture of the relationship that our creator, God would want to have with people, you would think the picture of Jesus with his disciples might be a good place to look, right? So how many times can you think of where Jesus, got up into the grill of his disciples for disobedience. How many times did he say, why'd you do that thing I told you not to? Again, for the 17th time, after you swore for the 15th time you wouldn't do it again. How many times did he say that? Zero. Did he want him to obey? Yeah, I think so. How many times did he rebuke him for that? None. What did he rebuke him for? Lack of faith. And what's that about? It's about relationship. He doesn't say, why didn't you do the thing I told you to do? Why did you do the thing I told you not to? He says, why didn't you believe me? Why didn't you trust me? When you were in this situation and you knew my words and you you, you heard my words and you also had your doubts and fears, why did you listen to your doubts and fears? Why did you want to have a closer relationship with your doubts and fears than you wanted to have with me? That's, in essence, his rebuke. Of a lack of faith. It's not so much do they have faith that he can do this or that objectively, but it's that they have faith subjectively when they follow him and do what he says, their life will come out better. So just for the record, well, actually, let me. Good metaphor is is a uh, check engine light on your car and the engine itself. Your check engine light goes on on your car. You don't drive to the dealer and say, Hey, listen, could you replace this light? It's kind of bothering me. That would be nuts. You go to the dealer and say, hey, my engine light's on. Could you check the engine and fix the engine? Disobedience, when it pops up in our lives, should give us, it's a warning sign. It should be, cause us concern. But you don't say, okay, then I'm going to obey more. I'm going to try harder. Really, this time I'll do it. You, when, when, when disobedience crops up, it's a sign that there's something wrong with the engine, something wrong with the relationship, something wrong with our trusting of him. The root underneath of all sin is a lack of trust and a lack of faith in our creator. And that's where we go back and ask him to once again, help us in that. So God does not want a darn thing from us. He wants a relationship with us. Our biggest problem is we're dead men. We need life from the outside in. He gives that life from the outside in and in exchange, he doesn't want anything from us, but he wants us to embrace that life from the outside in and walk in it and trust him more. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And it's too easy for us to slip into thinking he's the author, but you know, we're going to help him out here on the perfecter part. So question three, how do we go about doing this? How do we go about cooperating with God in the relationship that he wants to have with us? You could have a six month sermon series and only touch the surface answering that question. I got maybe 16 minutes left. So I'm going to focus only on God's word. And I thought about coming up a punch list, a bulleted list of here's practical tips to use God's word in your life so that you can have cooperate with Him, deepening that relationship He has with you. But with your permission, I would like to make it more personal. I would like to share with you my four decade plus love affair that's had its rocky patches with God's word. And if I have time, I'm also gonna ask you to recall some of those good times you've had and we'll end with a challenge. So my relationship with the word of God, 1973, I was 15 years old, high school, freshman, a priest from my mom's uh, church gave me a paper, New uh, New Testament from out of the blue. And uh, in my English class, there was a girl, Kathy, who was a Christian. I was not a Christian at the time. And she said, you know, you don't read the Bible like a normal book cover to cover you um before you even open it you pray god if, if you are real and if this is really your book teach me let me know in my mind in my heart in my spirit that you are real and this is really your book open it read a page close it say another prayer come back tomorrow and so i did and over four or five months i finished the new testament and uh exactly the way kathy told me and it was an amazing book i'd heard jesus name before but not like on the pages of that book. He was an amazing man. He was loving and tender. He was strong and fearless. He healed the sick. He even raised the dead. And as I read the words on the pages, he answered my prayer. He convinced me that it was true. It was, it was amazing. And so I told some of my friends, hey, I'm reading this book. It's really amazing. I think we should do what it says. And my friends said, you're an idiot. Not the first or last time I ever heard that. So for four years, I ended up doing the exact opposite of everything this book says. But its words haunted me. It lived inside me, even though I didn't want it to. Next important date, 1977. July 12, 1977, in an Arkansas Valley, hitchhiking with Rob Sittler, the druggiest of all my druggie friends, of which I had many. And that was the day where... God turned his word that was inside me and burped it up out. That was the day he just said, put his spiritual thumb on me and said, this is your day. This is your day. And I didn't hear anything audible, but it's not an exaggeration to say that is the day I heard. John, come forth. And it was like I had no choice. And that day he breathed his words of life into my dead bones. And I was a changed man on the spot. My friend Rob knew it. I suddenly became totally no fun to be with anymore. And we hitchhiked back to town. A ne- another pivotal event in my life, in my sometimes rocky, four decade long love affair, uh, August 1981, I don't remember the exact date. i have been married a couple, i have been saved a couple years, married a couple of months, getting ready to start three years of law school, and um, I had read the Bible for a couple of years, uh, was starting to understand things. I'd memorized some passages, First Corinthians 13, part of Psalm 51, and I had the idea to memorize an entire gospel, and so I told my friends at church, I was thinking I would like to memorize an entire gospel, and my friends said, you're an idiot. Well, actually, they said it, <clears throat> you know, more of a Christian-y kind of way than that, but they all look like you're What? One morning in August, a couple weeks before law school, I I got with my friend, Pat Balky, and I said, I'm thinking about memorizing an entire gospel. And Pat said, I know what you mean. And he tells me about memorizing Hebrews and memorizing James. And he's halfway through Romans and he's telling me how to do it. It's easier to memorize a verse a day than it is a verse a week. I was so pumped. I was so excited. I came home and told Angela, today changed my life. I became a verse memorizer today. And for my three years in law school, I probably didn't crack the Bible to read it 15 times. But I memorized Romans. I memorized Luke. One vacation, I memorized a Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, just to have a change of pace. I mean, it might have been 1,500 verses. And I don't say that to impress anybody. I couldn't remember. I couldn't quote you. uh, 1% of those verses, probably. In my mind, if you're going to memorize a large section, it's not the point that you can quote verbatim forever but the purpose is to ingest it deeply at that time. And even though I can't quote it, I guarantee you those words live with me and they live in me in a way that they wouldn't by just reading. So I graduate law school, business and babies, six kids, mortgages, things like that. Not a lot of dramatic moments that I can remember, but I, I kept in the word and I still would memorize here and there. And, um, and then in... Uh, In the early 2000s, I started using commentaries. And um, if you've never used a commentary, let me tell you why commentaries can be helpful. So if I was to say 9-11, what comes to mind? It's only, it's three digits, four syllables. When I say to you, this audience, 9-11, you have pages and pages of data and judgments and emotions that come up. 2,000 years from now, somebody reads an email or an article online and there's just this little cryptic reference, 9-11. They don't know that. They'd need a commentary. That's why you read a commentary, because it gives you a context that you'll never get. Even if you memorize the scripture, you still won't have that context. So commentaries, they do not replace reading the Bible at all, but they're a very useful help. Second thing I want to say about commentaries is this. For a short book like uh, Philippians, 100 Verses, you could probably find a 1600 page commentary. I haven't done any of those. I like these paperback ones. This is like 130 pages. It's got four books, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and it's got pictures. And these books have helped me know God's word more and love him more and have his life that he wants to breathe into me, come into me more. And then recently, the last couple of years, my big kick, is these numberless homemade Bibles. I go to BibleGateway.com and uh, strip out the verse numbers and download a book. This is Psalms. And, uh, and I leave these giant spaces for, for, for notes. Like I was flipping the other day and I saw, there's a picture of Aslan and the girls. I don't know what I was reading that day, but something inspired me. So I had room to stick that in there. And um, I highly recommend it. Um, in fact, right now, as I speak, I'm about a week or two away from finishing the book of Psalms. A, a, almost a year ago when COVID started, my attitude completely sucked. It totally, it was horrible. And, um, and I think I had a week or two gap not reading anything. And I said, I need Psalms. I've never really paid much attention to Psalms. George Seebeck is the man of Psalms, but not up until now, not me. So I printed this out and I read through it slowly and I got a commentary and I read through it again even more slowly. And this book that was not familiar, it's, it's not my friend. And it's bittersweet to think that I'll be wrapping up, and yet it's okay. It'll be time for me to move on and have another relationship with another part of his word. I've had dry times when I didn't sense him changing me at all for days or weeks or months. I've had times when he surprised me with a blessing. I remember crying one day reading Genesis 50. Joseph and his brothers, they have the most dysfunctional relationship you could imagine. And because God worked in Joseph's life and forgave him, Joseph forgave his brothers and restored the relationship, but the brothers didn't trust that the relationship was restored. And that made Joseph cry. And that made me cry. And it's actually a picture of God with us, that he has fully restored the relationship. But sometimes we don't trust that, and that's what he wants us to do. And that's why he, why he wants us in this word. So let me ask you, and this is not, I ask questions saying to get audience participation. This is not one of those times. This is a, I'm going to ask it, don't answer question. Just to clarify. But what are your, some of your favorite times in God's word? What are events that you can remember, you know, walking down a train track, memorizing a verse, and all of a sudden it, it clicks? Or... You know, somebody's sharing a verse with you and you can never hear that verse again without thinking of that person. What are some of those times? I would encourage the people in this room. In fact, I I wasn't sure if I was going to do this and I don't know where to get to this camera for the Zoom people. But Zoom people, I'm talking to you too. But after the meeting, if you are moved by anything in this message or if you're moved by any memory of your times in the word, let the first words out of your mouth be to share that encouraging thought. With somebody else it'll bring it up for you again it'll encourage them if there's anything that we could do if we're supposed to encourage one another to love and good deeds what better way than to encourage one another to be in the word and if you're not a Christian yet if you've never read the Bible why not what are you waiting for best-selling book every year since the Gutenberg press do what I did pray God if you're real if this is your book speak to me read a page close a book pray again do that day after day you do that, I guarantee you, it'll change your life. It did mine. I've had days... Now, my, my relationship with this book has not been perfect. It's had its rocky side on my part. I'm not Tom Short, the Cal Ripken of Bible reading. He made an oath in the 70s. He'd never put his head on the pillow unless he read the word. Semi, I've had days and weeks and months where I haven't read it at all or memorized. Sometimes out in, I think it's months. I don't know. I keep track of the times I'm reading a lot better than the times when I'm not. However... I would say this, that um, if you find yourself, I mean, sometimes I avoid, it was just negligence on my part. Other times it was intentional. I felt guilty or shameful about something in my life. And so I would step away and I would put myself in Christian time out, sort of Protestant penance to where I learned my lesson and I became worthy enough to come back to God to have a relationship with him, which, oh, by the way, is stupid and horrible theology, but I'll admit that's happened to me and it's possible I might not be the only person that's ever had that kind of thing happen. If you ever find yourself in a gap period, two quick thoughts. One, spiritual food and physical food are the exact opposite. When you don't eat physical food, you get hungry. And if you don't eat for a long time, you can't think about anything else. And when you do eat, you don't want any more. God's word is the opposite. If you don't eat, you're hungry you are less hungry you don't eat for a long time you're less hungry still and when you do eat it provokes even more hunger so when you find yourself in a gap just find some on-ramp to get back into this thing and number two we need other people in our lives i had a priest who i have no idea if he was saved but he gave me a new testament i had kathy who told me how to read it i had pat by the way side note pat and kathy Married decades ago, live in Indiana. I hadn't spoken to him in years, called them this last week to say I was going to mention their names. It was such a wonderful conversation. But um, we all need Pat and Kathy's in our lives. If you really want to take it to the next level, be a Pat and Kathy in other people's lives. I've read and memorized with a positive mind and heart. And I've read and memorized with a negative, horrible mind and heart. I've had dry times when I was in God's Word, but I couldn't sense it changing me for days, or weeks, or months, and that's okay. Because after 47 years in this book, I am 100.0% convinced you cannot waste a single minute with this book, whether you sense it at the time or not. Every minute. You spend with this book, especially when you come to listen and just to be with him and see it as not something to do, but someone to be with. Every minute will have lasting impact on your life, whether it seems like it at the time or not. So I got 60 seconds to wrap this thing up and drive it home. You and me, we're Lazarus. We're dead men in need of resurrection. Jesus tells us, I am the resurrection. We don't come to this book to be better Christians, which doesn't make any sense. He didn't come to die. He didn't come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men alive. We come to this book for life. God exhaled his life onto these pages. Here's Red Letter. It's an old book. This series is called the Red Letter series because Jesus' quotes are in red. You want to know a secret? Every word on every page is red. He exhaled it all. And you and I come, you and I come to this book to inhale that life. That's why we come to this book. He wants a relationship with us. One of the key ways to have that is to breathe in life from this book. So come to this book often to drink, to breathe it in. Yes, there may be dry times when you don't sense his word changing you at all, though it always does, whether it feels like it or not. The more you come, to listen and just to be with him. Don't be surprised if from time to time you can't almost hear him say, my child, come forth.